Okay, it should be live now. Just so you know, I don't know what that is, but there's like a background clanking. Oh, you know, that's probably my clock. I've been meaning to get rid of that clock, so let me do that. <laughs> Okay, we should be good. All right, so we are yeah, like, I will pray and we can get started here. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together yet again and uh, take a deeper dive into your word. We thank you especially for your prophetic word, which Peter tells us uh, is the more sure word of prophecy giving us proof and evidence of the veracity of your word. We can see from prophecies that have been fulfilled, how you anticipate prophecies being fulfilled in the future. We can trust and rely in those because of the prophecies that are already fulfilled. So Lord, we want to take an honest and careful look at the text this evening. This is often called the most symbolic chapter and the most symbolic book. So we want to be careful in interpreting it. So guide us uh, both in our exegesis and in our understanding and help us to apply it to our lives and how we ought to live today. We know that the hope of your soon return purifies us as we abide in that hope. Lord, we ask all these things for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. So we are going to continue in Revelation. We are in chapter 12. So we are... We're on the downward slope towards the end, 22 books or 22 chapters, um, and we finished chapter 11 last time we were together. And conveniently, uh, the middle of the book happens to be the middle of the tribulation period that we're looking at in Revelation as well. Uh, last time we met, we saw the two witnesses that will be executed by the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation. And tonight we get some background information to um, the rise of the Antichrist, but particularly the, the spirit or the power behind the Antichrist, which is Satan, the great dragon. Uh, and like I mentioned in the prayer, this is a very symbolic book, um, and we feel free to interpret it symbolically because within the text it says that these are signs. Uh, but we want to maintain that only those which are referred to as signs get interpreted symbolically, and that which is not directly called a sign or within its language is not spoken of figuratively, we want to continue to interpret those literally. Um, especially when within one chapter, something is identified as symbolic. Uh, we don't want to, to uh, let that ink bleed into the other things which are not identified as symbolic. So our first section here is the conflict of the ages. It's going to be Revelation 12 verses 1 through 5. And this gives us uh, basically the story from the very beginning of creation or a little after creation, after the fall, uh, Satan's attempt to take the throne, uh, to take the throne of God and his success in taking the throne of this earth 
recognizing that a ruler is coming to take that throne from him. Uh, so these first five verses are prefatory uh, to the actual time period that we are in in the tribulation. It gives us the background information of the angelic realms, what has been going on for millennia past. So verses 1 and 2 read, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So as I mentioned, uh, this is identified as a sign in heaven. Uh, the word for sign here um, is the same word used for or translated as a symbol in other places in scripture. Uh, it is the Greek word simeon, I believe, uh, which doesn't mean much to most, but uh, as an exegete, it helps me to identify basically when, uh, when we need to, uh, to search a little harder for an interpretation of this passage. And now the standard approach or the standard attempt in interpreting something is to look in the closest context possible, be that within the same verse, within the same chapter, within the same book. Um, if there's nothing within the same book that directly identifies that symbol, we have to look a little further. Uh, when we have to extend beyond one book, we try to maintain within one author. So uh, the first goal would be then to search the other books of John to see where uh, this sign might, uh, might appear. And if that fails, um, such as is the case here in verse 1, uh, we have to look at the historical context from all of Scripture. Revelation is particularly a book that uh, draws from the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, over 270 of them are direct allusions to Old Testament imagery, Old Testament promises, um, etc. Uh, so for Revelation especially, we want to look at the Old Testament. Chances are it's going to be an Old Testament allusion. Uh, so that is what most settle on here uh, in identifying this woman clothed with the sun and crowned with stars, um, standing atop of the moon. Uh, we go all the way back to Genesis 37 and recognize this as a Jewish symbol, uh, which fits here well with the context being in the Great Tribulation, which is particularly a Jewish tribulation. Uh, and further being in now the second half uh, of that area or leading up into the second half of the tribulation, which is the time of Jacob's trouble, um, it's especially appropriate to search Jewish history um, for this context. So in Genesis 37, 9 through 10, it records Joseph's dream that he has uh, prior to being dragged off into Egypt or sold into slavery to Egypt. And that verse reads, Now he, that is Joseph, had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? 
So see here how in the context of Genesis 37, not only are we given symbols, but we're also given an interpretation of it. Uh, so though this is not uh, the ideal uh, proximity of the interpretation of, of the context, it is given some heavier weight uh, just by nature of the book of Revelation and the longevity of these symbols throughout Jewish history. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, uh, when God is revealing the new covenant to Israel, the promise of the millennial kingdom and the covenant which will govern uh, that kingdom, God uses this imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars to talk about his covenant faithfulness uh, to Israel. So he says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If the fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, and the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will, cap, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Uh, so this is important because it's essentially saying the, the, uh, the nation of Israel will maintain its covenant and God will maintain his faithfulness towards Israel, even as long as the sun, the moon, and the stars maintain their orbits in the sky, uh, that if God has undone his covenant with Israel, then also the entire universe has spun out of control, uh, that so long as God maintains the heavenly bodies, so also will he maintain his covenant with Israel. Uh, so these are a sign of God's covenant faithfulness towards Israel. Uh, another sign here then, uh, if we are interpreting the woman clothed with the sun, uh, standing atop the moon and crowned with the stars, the sun garment of this woman would be um, an image of Jacob the father of the nation of Israel. And yes, we go back to Jacob, not back to Abraham, whenever God is dealing with the national Israel, not spiritual Israel, uh, which, which is under Abraham, who has the spiritual seed and the physical seed. When God is narrowing that down so that it is specifically talking about the physical uh, national line of Israel, he uses Jacob. Uh, and that, that is especially poignant here in the text, because many will try to say that the church has replaced Israel uh, as the covenant recipients from God. Uh, that has absolutely no bearing in scriptural uh, texts. They always say that they are spiritual Israel. Uh, such a thing never exists in scripture. The spiritual seed of Abraham uh, through the Messiah that came from Israel uh, is something which the church has promised. They're grafted onto the olive tree. They do not replace the olive tree. So here we are looking at national Israel in context. This woman is national Israel, uh, and she gives birth to the Messiah. Uh, the Catholic Church often takes this symbol to be Mary, and as uh, it may well represent Mary, uh, the idea that it is Mary is far too reductive. Uh, it it is the entire lineage of Israel as it, 
as it labors away, attempting to produce the savior seed promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So it's it's a narrow and untenable uh, conclusion to make this out to be Mary, although the Messiah did come through uh, the girl Mary. So we see here Israel's long pregnancy prophesied back in Isaiah, uh, chapter 26, verses 17 and on. It reads, as the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed in labor, we gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth nor were inhabitants of the world born. Uh, Now, this is a very interesting prophecy. Basically, Israel is saying, we tried and tried and tried to produce our Messiah, to produce our king, and we failed at every point. It it seemed as if we were giving birth to wind because every savior they put their hope in uh, turned out not to be a savior. Uh, God, after promising this savior seed to, to Adam and Eve, reaffirmed that to Noah through the line of Shem, and he reaffirmed it to Abraham through the line of Isaac, and then again to Jacob, Um, and Jacob moving on towards Judah. And Israel understood this promise of a Messiah. Uh, They were looking for a man, not a God-man. That became quite a problem come come gospel era, Uh, but they did understand that a king would come from this line, And that was the king that they were anticipating and that Isaiah 26 anticipates as well. And their disappointment that that king has not yet come at the point when Isaiah is writing. Uh, So Isaiah takes place right here uh, with the King Uzziah after Joram before Jotham. So you see there's still quite a bit of, of, uh, of lineage left in Christ's line Um, still to come after Isaiah's prophecies. But it will conclude with Jesus, um, and that is the infant born here to the symbolic uh, woman in heaven, which is national Israel. So Isaiah 26 continues into verse 19, and it says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Now, this seems rather out of the blue um, in Isaiah's prophecy, until you realize that this is the promise connected with that Messiah and with that Savior, uh, is the resurrection of the dead. Um, So that though Israel has struggled in its labor pains to produce a Messiah, the promise here of a Messiah who will come and the resurrection hope that they have uh, still maintains that their dead will rise and the corpses will rise. All of those men in the lineage of of, uh, Jesus, though they have gone to their graves, they will be resurrected again, uh, those who have put their faith in that coming seed. Uh, And also interestingly, together with that resurrection promise uh, that Israel has, often we see in conjunction with that promise, the angel Michael. Now, the angel Michael is going to come into play in the next um, portion of this chapter, uh, verse 7, I think we see him. 
uh, and we see the angelic battle taking place in heaven, Michael seems to always be connected in some way to the saints of the Old Testament who have passed away. We see in Jude 9 that he protects the body of Noah when Satan comes to contend with him. But here in Daniel 12, uh, right at the beginning of the chapter, we read Michael's connection here to the resurrection promise of Israel. Daniel reads, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightest of the brightness of the expanses of heaven, and those who led the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we see in verse 1, the period of the tribulation, uh, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, uh, which we are about to jump into here with chapter 12. Uh, and it says that it will be a time of great distress, but at the end of that distress, they will be rescued. And this is speaking of a physical rescuing. The Lord himself will return to the earth and rescue alive the remnant of Israel. Uh, and then those who have died and those who have passed on already will awake from sleep. We see at the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation period, the dead of Israel will rise again. This is distinct from the resurrection of the church, which happens prior to the tribulation. Uh, and that is a resurrection into the clouds to be with Jesus Christ. Uh, and this resurrection is a resurrection to the earth restored by Jesus Christ after the tribulation. <clears throat> uh, Isaiah continues in uh, chapter 26 and verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. So we have this imagery of them being closed in and then being hidden away from the destruction that's ra raging outside of them. That's the idea of indignation here. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So this is looking forward to that last uh, period of earth's history, which Daniel will call uh, the 70th week, especially the second half of that 70th week. Um, but Isaiah's vision continues. There's a chapter break, but it's still part of the same vision here. Isaiah 27 verse 1 reads, In that day, so that is the day after the indignation, after the Lord returns uh, to end the indignation during the period of the tribulation, it says, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Now, we're going to look at this imagery a bit more. Uh, verse 9 in chapter 12 of Revelation deals specifically with identifying the serpent, and it will identify it as Satan. So we see that the destruction of Satan comes after Israel's um, hiding away, 
after their protection. They're being, uh, they're being covered by the Lord and the Lord's return to conquer their enemies. Um, and all of this roots back to that promise in Genesis 3.15, uh, when the serpent caused the woman to sin by tricking her, uh, by uh, appealing to her pride, of both of life and of the eye, uh, and also the, uh, what is that, whatever the third one is there, the three, the three temptations that cause sin. Uh, Satan appealed to all of them, and uh, the woman was unprepared, though she had all the tools in her spiritual tool belt to resist the enemy. She did give in. Um, she listened to his words over listening to God's words, and the the result of that was a curse, both on mankind and on Satan. But though the, though God cursed mankind, he also gave them a promise that this serpent would one day be overcome by the seed of the woman. And that promise says, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. That is the crucifixion. And you shall bruise, or sorry, he shall bruise you on the head. That is the final destruction of Satan. And then looking backwards uh, towards the crucifixion, it writes, and you shall bruise him on the heel. But uh, this chapter continues, chapter 12 of Revelation, uh, verse 3 and 4 presents us another sign. It says, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, again, uh, the, the inclusion here of a sign saying directly that this is a sign not only gives us permission, but it actually makes it necessary within the context uh, to interpret this symbolically. Uh, some, or a literal interpretation does not mean ignoring figures of speech, does not mean ignoring uh, symbolism, it means not creating symbolism out of thin air. It means we have to follow the rules of natural speech and of natural text, understanding that God is a God capable of communicating, having given mankind the faculty of communication and understanding, so that when he's communicating with those who he, whom he's given this ability to read and understand plainly, uh, we understand that God is not here concealing, but he is revealing, and that is the name of Revelation. It's not the concealment, but it is revelation, the unveiling. God is unveiling future truths here. Um, so we want to take into consideration the nature of this sentence, that it is intended to be uh, understood figuratively. Uh, and a sign here gives us that, uh, gives us that uh, requirement to symbolically interpret this within the constraints of context. And this is interpreted for us in the very immediate context, both within this chapter and uh, again within this book. So Revelation 12 verse 9 says the great dragon was thrown down. Now it gives us the interpretation. Who is that great dragon? It says the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this great dragon is interpreted for us not only as the serpent from the very beginning of time, uh, from the very beginning of Genesis 3, we see him, 
Um, it is Satan, which is the Hebrew word uh, for, for the enemy of mankind, this, this uh, fallen angel, the devil, and then devil, which is the Greek word uh, that is a cognate with, uh, with Satan. So we've got Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent. Revelation, the last book in canon, is basically saying, let's stick a pin through all these and tie them together with the knot. Um, they are all one and the same. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, reconfirms this interpretation and says, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we can be absolutely certain that this serpent, this dragon, is Satan. Uh, now, this does present a bit of uh, difficulty for some when they move into the next chapter, Revelation 13, verse 1, because we see a beast coming out of the sea, uh, and it says that he also has seven heads, and he has ten crowns on his horns. So some want to say that this is uh, one in the same, that this beast coming out of the sea is the same as the dragon. Uh, but this is not possible if we read a little bit further uh, into the chapter, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 13, we see that he is distinct from this dragon. So it says, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now this should immediately bring our minds back to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, these beasts which Daniel sees arise out of the river. But we see the dragon being referred to as a distinct uh, creature here. It says, and the dragon gave him, referring back to the beast, his power and his throne and his great authority. So the dragon, the subject, acts on the beast, the object. They must be distinct from one another. And then it continues and it says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. That is referring to the beast and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. What we have here in view is Satan, symbolically as a dragon with seven heads, giving power to a human uh, who, who is uh, in conjunction with the same power of Satan. And this is Satan's attempt to create his own satanic trinity, just like the holy trinity of God. We know from Isaiah 4 that Satan's goal has always been to exalt himself in a throne above the, the, uh, the most high. He will uh, produce a false Christ with false signs who comes in the name of Satan, comes in the image of Satan. Um, so this should draw our minds to um, God and Jesus Christ, where God sent his son and the son came in the image of man and also in the image of God um, by the power of God and came to preach the message of God. So we have on the demonic uh, side of that, we have Satan mimicking God and Christ because he is going to come to the earth claiming himself to be God and claiming that the Antichrist is the Christ of God. Uh, and the power to, to trick mankind, we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that Satan has blinded mankind from the gospel. But he'll also have here the false prophet, which functions as a false 
or a uh, satanic Holy Spirit uh, that will deceive many, just as the Holy Spirit convicts many of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So uh, what do these seven heads symbolize? We are not told in context uh, what they symbolize, so we can only speculate. Uh, there are two pretty common speculations. Uh, one, one view is that these represent the seven great Gentile uh, world powers. Uh, unfortunately, only four of these are distinctly told to us in scripture. In fact, uh, the Babylonian Empire, which my bracket should be moved up to uh, include that Babylonian Empire, uh, it says is the beginning of the time of the Gentiles, the beginning of those Gentile powers. Uh, we have to extrapolate on the text in order to get the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire to fit into that. Uh, for that reason, I can't completely dismiss this because it's all uh, speculation. Um, I can't dismiss this one as impossible, uh, but it doesn't seem to have enough scriptural um, backing for me to really grab this as my own uh, interpretation. I prefer uh, view number two, which we get from Daniel 7, because in that case, we actually have seven different horns, uh, which seem to bear a lot more uh, symbolic connection. Uh, hang on, I got to shut my office door here. Let's see. Uh, so in Daniel 7, we read, after this, I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, beast, uh, dreadful and terrifying and extremely, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So this is Daniel's vision uh, of the final world empire uh, that ar arose out of the river there in uh, in. Babylon. And this beast had seven horns. Later, an angel comes to him and interprets this imagery for him and says that those seven horns are seven kings, um, seven rulers that will be under this, um, this end times world government, or actually it has 10 horns rather. Uh, but then another horn will arise that is not part of these 10 horns and will eliminate three of the other horns. That is, one, uh, one man will arise, not a part of these 10, but from outside of these 10. And in eliminating three of those 10, making now only seven rulers, he will consolidate power to himself, putting himself over those seven rulers. Uh, so that's all from Daniel 7, and the end of chapter 7 interprets this vision for Daniel. Uh, so my view is that it's referring back here to Daniel, the seven powers that will make up the Antichrist kingdom uh, at the end of the tribulation. 
So it also says that these uh, heads are each wearing uh, diadems, the word for crowns. Now there's two words for crown in Greek. One is Stephanos and the other is diadema. Uh, even in the Hebrew, these are different words, though they come from the same root word in Hebrew. Uh, the Stephanos is specifically for victory, uh, someone who overcomes or someone who succeeds in a competition or a race. Uh, that's the imagery that Paul used in 2 Corinthians. Uh, but the diadema specifically speaks of sovereignty and power. Now, these crowns that the dragon is wearing and that the beast will be wearing are those diadema, which means sovereignty and power. They have not vanquished an enemy, uh, but rather they have taken sovereignty and power. And this is Satan's uh, by means that he is the god of this world, uh, the ruler of the powers of the air. Uh, this is his rightful sovereignty and his rightful power um, as the rightful ruler of this earth, mankind, has submitted themselves to Satan back in the garden, and uh, only the Lord Jesus Christ will come to take that crown back from Satan. But we do have here in the second part of verse 4, chapter 12 again, and verse 5, we see the initial victory uh, of God over this serpent over this great dragon. And we see that it comes when the woman gives birth to this child, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and that Savior is one who will rule, but he was caught up to God into his throne. Thus, the Son uh, is in a state of protection uh, while Satan is still uh, going about his evil business and trying to stop the kingdom of Christ from happening or from coming to this earth. And as a side note here, one of his tactics in doing so is to try to convince us that the kingdom is already here, that there is no future kingdom of God, uh, because that leads us to, uh, honestly, it leads to anti-Semitism when we think that the kingdom is ours rather than the kingdom being uh, national Israel's to whom it was promised. If God's promises to them are spiritualized, then the kingdom is spiritualized. And as we, we go through, we'll see the importance of the Jewish nation for that kingdom. Uh, so I won't read this again, but this conflict um, began all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And the tactics of the serpent we can see consistently throughout all of scripture. Starting in Genesis 4, uh, we see the murder of Abel by Cain, where uh, when Cain was born, Eve thought that she had been given the seed promised by the Lord who would uh, redeem them. But instead of being the redeemer, he became the murderer of that redeemer. And so God replaced uh, Abel with Seth and promised that the Savior would come through the line of Seth. Uh, so then yeah, we see that first murder. Actually, let me read this because it is... Uh, poignant here. This is the very first attempt of Satan to take out that, uh, that promised seed. It says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. 
Now the idea here, it's not fully beat out for us in the text, but when we look at it in the larger uh, thrust of the narrative of scripture, we see that this is the, the very first instance of a seed coming from mankind. And that promise should be prominent in our minds as we move to chapter four, uh, that we are looking for some sort of a savior seed. Uh, so that's either going to be Cain or it's going to be Abel. And for both of these men, they would have been aware of that as well. So having the Lord look with regard on one son over the other isn't just, isn't just a conflict of uh, God likes me better than you, but it's who is this blessing of being the redeemer going to be handed down to? Is it going to be Abel or is it going to be Cain? Um, so Cain's jealousy took over. His countenance fell and he became angry. And it says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see, Cain had forgotten that the other side of that promise was the seed of the serpent. Uh, that it was not just a promise of one will become the seed of the woman, but also that there will be a seed of the serpent um, that will be crushed by the other seed. So God is saying, do not become that seed of the serpent. Uh, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to master you. So, But Cain told Abel, his brother, about all of this. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And so Cain became the first seed of the serpent. Um, uh, I didn't include it here, but in Genesis 5.1, we see that another son was born to Adam, and the blessing was given to that son, that his line uh, would be the, the line of the Redeemer. We also see in the days of Noah uh, that all of the earth had been corrupted, and so God had to essentially start over. And he had to start over with a line of flesh that had not been corrupted. So when he looked on Noah and found favor in Noah, that's telling us that his line, that his flesh had not been corrupted um, by the angelic, uh, by the angelic corruption that had happened in Noah's day. Uh, we talked about that when we dealt with the Noahic covenant a couple months back. Um, so that is in one of our foundations videos, if you want more information on that one. But the line of possible savior seeds was narrowed down to three men, the three sons of Noah. Um, from Noah's sons, Shem was chosen, Ham, and Ham's line through Canaan was cursed. Um, so again, we see both of these seeds rising up next to each other. Uh, but we get down to Abraham, the son of Terah, um, and God narrows the line of the Savior seed yet further and says it will come through Abraham. Uh, and Abraham is a very unfaithful steward of that promise. But thankfully, the covenants are not about our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness towards us, towards those whom he's covenanted, which is, the, which is national Israel. But here it's still broad. It's under Abraham. Um, and Abraham does not take God's, uh, God's promise of a son, a promise of a line, very seriously. He doesn't understand uh, the, he doesn't understand fully 
the importance of maintaining that bloodline uh, towards the Redeemer. And so we see that uh, Abraham is very willing to sell his wife um, into sexual slavery uh, with the Pharaoh of Egypt in order to save his own life. So he has put an importance on his own life. And this is probably not just to save his own neck, um, but uh, somewhat here, considering the promise of God that a son would come from him. So God clarifies yet further in Genesis 17 and says that the seed will come through Sarah. Now this happens after Abraham is unfaithful in another way, tries to have a son through Hagar. Uh, Ishmael is born through that union. That was another uh, attempt of Satan to, to uh, thwart these, this redeemer seed of God, uh, but God cannot be thwarted. So in Genesis 17, we see God doubling down on his promise to Abraham, but specifying yet further and saying that this seed will come through Sarah. So now it's not just Abraham, but it's Sarah also. That is important again. Uh, the church does not receive these covenant blessings because they are not the spiritual seed of Sarah. They are the spiritual seed of Abraham, uh, but uh, the physical blessings and the physical promises given in the covenant to Abraham through Sarah will be given primarily to their physical seed, their physical line, national Israel. But uh, this isn't good enough for Abraham yet. He, he, uh, he pulls the same trick. Uh, here with Abimelech uh, in Genesis 20, tries to sell his wife as his sister, and Abimelech rebukes him after a dream that he has from the Lord, um, and he sends Abraham away. So we see a Gentile king being more faithful than God's covenanted man, but still God is faithful to his promises. And finally, we have the very interesting account in Genesis 22, where Abraham is provoked by God. Uh, in testing his faith to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now, God has promised him that that is the son through whom the Savior seed will come. Uh, but Abraham also understands God's power over death. We see, I think, in verse 6 uh, that Abraham's, Abraham has rationalized this, uh, this request from God or this demand from God by resting in God's promises of resurrection. Uh, Though God has another plan, He's, he thinks that if I strike down this son, that God can raise him up again, because Abraham knows that the promise will come through Isaac. Uh, but this was possibly, this is not told us in the text, um, this is possibly a similar event um, as what happened with Job, uh, where God asked Satan to consider his servant Abraham in this case, and perhaps Satan would say, yeah, he's faithful, which we might look at and say, was he really? But God's estimation of Abraham was that he was faithful. Uh, in Genesis uh, 34 or somewhere in there, uh, we see God specifically say that Abraham was faithful in his covenant. Uh, so God considers Abraham faithful. This was a test. It was probably a test provoked by Satan. Uh, because Satan is the accuser of mankind, and we will look at that more later too. Um, continuing this uh, attack against the seed, uh, Pharaoh's massacre in Exodus 122, where Pharaoh 
uh, order that all of the Hebrew children be drowned in the Nile. Uh, yet uh, Moses was saved, but we can only assume that, actually we can only, we know uh, that the line of Christ was also preserved. Uh, Noah, or not Noah, Moses is not in the line of Christ. We see him preserved in Exodus uh, 2, but we, we know that the line of Christ was also preserved at this time. Uh, then we'll skip all the way to the end of, of uh, pre-Jesus Israeli history to the massacre of Jehoram. In 2 Chronicles 21, 13, uh, we read, but uh, they have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And they have also killed your brothers and your own family who were better than you. Uh, so the, the punishment for sacrificing their children to Moloch uh, was that they were sent, um, the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Ethiopians were sent against the house of Jehoram, and they were all killed, save for his youngest son, Jehoahaz. Well, Jehoahaz, whose name is also called Ahaziah, and that is told to us in the text. Um, it says, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, the king in his place. Uh, so that is this, the youngest son of Jehoram. Uh, but it says, uh, for the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became a king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. Now, Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, was not a, uh, a good woman. Uh, when her son Ahaziah was killed, uh, she rose up and killed all those in the line uh, that could take over as king, and she became reigning queen of the land. But she didn't realize that her sister, Jehoshabeth, um, had hidden uh, Ahaziah's son, Athal wait, uh, Ahaziah's son, Joash, uh, who was only six years old at the time. So we see here the, the bottleneck of Joash that once again, the, the line of Christ has been narrowed down to one single man who can carry it on. So many times throughout this history um, of the seed, it has come very close to not succeeding. And surely Satan thought, this is it. Um, I'm about to cut off the line of, uh, of the coming Messiah but he fails every time. His last attempt here uh, was Herod's massacre. Uh, this is after the birth of Christ. Uh, Christ would have been about four years old when Herod ordered that all children, uh, all male children, uh, two years and older, or two years old and under, so Christ would have been under two years old, sorry, uh, were ordered to be killed. So this is reminiscent of Pharaoh's order that the children be drowned in the Nile. So it's Satan once again using the same tactics to try to get rid of the Savior seed. Uh, but Jesus 
was not killed. Um, he escaped down to Egypt, somewhat ironically, but very prophetically. Uh, and Satan had one last attempt to wipe out the Savior's seed, but didn't realize that in biting his heel, uh, he, uh, he opened the door for Christ to redeem all mankind by the shedding of innocent blood on their behalf, paying the propitiation or the substitute uh, for what our sins uh, have incurred um, as a cost. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Satan probably thought once again, um, hooray, I've killed the, the seed, uh, the savior seed, but in doing so, um, in, in crucifying Christ and killing Christ, Christ provided salvation to all mankind. Uh, and we see that when Jesus is resurrected in Matthew 28, uh, that he conquered death, that he conquered the grave, and uh, we become conquerors with him through faith. So we, we come back to our, our text in Revelation 12, uh, verse 5, where it says the son was born and then the son was caught up to heaven. So this son was born, uh, that is Jesus Christ, and then he ascended to heaven, it does skip over uh, the redemption of the crucifixion because it was not uh, a final death blow. And the purpose here is to show that the seed is alive and well. He is the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who functions as our high priest in heaven right now and will come again to rule as king over his kingdom. Uh, so right now, he is not reigning as king over his kingdom, which is earth. Satan is ruling over his king, over the earth as king. Uh, Jesus is at his father's throne. He is not sitting on his own throne, the throne over earth, but he is sitting beside God the Father over the universal throne. In Ephesians 1, 18 through 21, we read, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We see that he has been elevated to the right hand of God, above the rule and authority and power and dominion of this earth. But this earth is the authority and the dominion over which he will rule as the theocratic king during the kingdom millennium. Uh, that's a double slide. The throne of Christ will be the throne of David. We see this in Luke 1, 30 to 33, the promise given to Mary by the angel Gabriel. Uh, it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and, his, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is told to us also in Isaiah 9, uh, 6 through 7. This is a very famous, um, a very famous song, which, or a prophecy, which we often take, uh, we often read at Christmas time. It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and this is where the fulfilled portion of the prophecy ends. Everything else awaits the future where he will take the throne on earth. And the, the rest of this uh, prophecy goes, and the government will rest on his shoulders. It will. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, uh, 7 through 9, tells us very similar information. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And that is the, is the language of our verse here, Revelation 12, 5, that he will possess that rod of iron to break down the nations. So for our first five verses, we conclude uh, regarding the conflict of the ages, that the woman represents national Israel, not a spiritualized Israel, not the church, not Mary. Uh, this is national Israel using imagery that can only pertain to national Israel. Uh, the dragon is Satan. This is interpreted for us in the immediate context. Uh, and we see that he is cast down to the earth together with a third of the stars. Now, in these uh, five verses, we're given two sets of stars. One is a crown, uh, which the woman wears, that we identify as uh, the sons of Israel, 12 stars. Uh, but these third of the stars, which the dragon takes with him, flings down to the earth, um, we interpret these differently. And that, uh, that is a difficult portion of this text to interpret. Again, it is symbolic. It is part of the symbolic uh, phraseology of this passage, but we interpret that uh, from passages later on, which we're going to look at as angels. Uh, those are the verses uh, coming up in the next passages. Uh, so here we do have symbolically portrayed angelic warfare going on in heaven from the very beginning of the conflict between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All right, before we move on, I have to ask you guys, can you hear the music going on in the sanctuary behind me? 